Peter was unable to come for Sunday lunch, so Father Callum and I were alone. It gave me the opportunity to ask how Peter had managed to build a house for himself on such a remote island. A small Hebridean black house was built on the island in the late 1830s, said Father Callum, but it was destroyed in the winter of 1851. Destroyed by what, I asked. (laughs) Destroyed by whom, you should say, Father Callum replied. Oh, are you referring to the Highland clearances, I asked. (laughs) I am indeed. I suppose the Highlanders must feel very bitter towards the English for what they did. It wasn't the English, said Father Callum. It was our own chiefs with their lust for money and their sheep. It was they who betrayed us. The chief might sometimes have been a tyrant. He might even have had power of life and death over his clansmen. But for all that, he was often as not a protector too. And his own way, a father to his people. But after the rebellion in 1745, things began to change. The lairds were no longer warrior chiefs, but landowners. They wanted fine clothes, carriages, and fashionable homes in which to entertain their friends. They wanted to send their sons to school in England and buy coveted commissions for them in the most prestigious regiments. All this needed money. The problem was where to get it from. Sheep, I said, Ay, sheep, cheviots, a new breed from the south that could live through the severest winters, and produce three and four times the amount of wool and meat than their highland cousins. This was how the clearances started. Thousands upon thousands of men, women and children had their houses literally burnt over their heads if they didn't get out quick enough. All this to make room for sheep. Many of them wandered into the slums in Glasgow, but many more were unceremoniously put aboard ships some manacled like slaves bound for North America, Canada, or Australia. Father Callum was suddenly interrupted by Peter's arrival. So I had to wait until the following day to hear the end of Father Callum's story that became more personal than I could ever have imagined. I was delighted that Peter had promised to speak to me about meditation because at last I would be able to make a contribution as I had practiced meditation for a couple of years while at Harvard, thanks to our resident guru. He took all his pupils to India during the summer holidays, where we lived for three months in an ashram. Peter was surprised to hear about my experience practicing Indian meditation. Your experience will help you to understand the meaning of true Christian meditation, Peter said. The sort of meditation that you practiced was commonplace in the East long before Christ came, and in the West too, for that matter, with the Gnostics and later with the Neoplatonists. Their great leader, Plotinus, set out for India to learn about their techniques for himself. But Christianity was different from all other previous philosophies and religions because it was primarily centred on love, not knowledge. Our God is love, infinite love, and for us, therefore, salvation will always come by learning how to love him. 
Thanks to the incarnation, the God who was infinite love became man in the person of Jesus Christ. So in coming to love him, we come to love God. Now, love of its very nature wants to be united with a person who is loved. This union became possible through the love that was generated by learning to love Jesus Christ. This love came easily to those disciples who came to know him while he was on earth, but this was not possible in the same way for those who came to follow him later, who had never seen him in the flesh. It was for these new disciples that a completely new form of meditation was introduced that did not depend on using mantras or any other techniques for that matter. It grew out of reflecting and ruminating on the life and the teaching of Jesus that depicted the most loving and lovable person who had ever lived. In this new form of meditation, the Christians were taught how, through prayerful reflection on the person of Jesus, they could generate the same love for him that had inspired the first disciples. So when we listen to his words, we learn to listen to God. When we learn to love him, we learn to love God. This is why all authentic Christian prayer begins not by flinging oneself into obscure transcendental states of awareness, but by trying to get to know and to love Jesus Christ. St. Jerome said that to be ignorant of the Scriptures is to be ignorant of Christ. So it goes without saying that the starting point for getting to know Jesus Christ is to read the Scriptures. They were written for all of us, so that we may have life and have it more abundantly. They were written specifically for those who had not seen but had learnt to believe, that we may come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and find life through his name. When we read the scriptures slowly and prayerfully, allowing them to sink into our hearts, then we listen to the word of God speaking to us and learn to experience his love, loving us now. The early Christians had no other prayer books to hand, nor did they have need of them. They were not interested in how much they read, but how deeply they were able to penetrate the sacred texts. They would read a few verses at a time, going over them for a second and a third time, poring over them, entering more profoundly into their dynamic meaning. They would pause in moments of deep silence to allow the same spirit to inspire the scriptures in the first place, to inspire them also. When they had fully savoured one particular text, they would reverently move on to another and repeat the process, leaving pauses for silence, for the words to seep into the very marrow of their being. As their prayer grew more and more intense, the moments of silence would become more prolonged until in the end words would give way to a deep interior stillness. In this stillness, they would meet their maker in a way 
and on a level known only to the believer who has given his all to the one who is the all in all. I find what you're saying very interesting, I said, but do we have evidence to show that this form of meditation was actually practiced from the beginning? The earliest sources are quite clear, Peter said. In order to teach new Christians how to meditate, they were given events in the life of Jesus to reflect on after they had said their vocal prayers at the third, the sixth, and the ninth hour. In addition to this, they were encouraged to get up at midnight to meditate on the death and resurrection of Jesus that was traditionally believed to have taken place at midnight. Today, this may be seen as expecting too much, but in those days when most decent people went to bed shortly after sunset and arose at sunrise, it was not such a terrible imposition. And for many, it became the favorite time for prayer when all was still and quiet. How would you advise a person to meditate today, I said, more to the point, how would you advise me now? Well, I usually <laughs> recommend that people use St. John's Gospel to begin with, turning to his famous discourses, especially the discourse at the Last Supper, from chapter 13 to chapter 17. There's enough food for prayer there to last a lifetime. Then I suggest perhaps the, the letters of St. John and St. Paul and the other Gospels. But how do you advise people to use the texts, I said? Well, I usually advise them to read some of the texts several times over, pausing over them, repeating them, and asking God's help to enable them to penetrate their meaning and to allow the impact of that meaning to burst into their conscious minds. Let me show you what I mean. Peter stopped talking, sat back in his chair and closed his eyes, remaining silent and quite motionless for a good thirty seconds before he began to speak. He began by drawing together several texts from St. John's Gospel. He repeated them slowly, unconsciously, injecting into them a meaning born of long years of personal prayer. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you know me, you know the Father too. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? Anyone who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I shall love him and reveal myself to him. Make your home in me as I make mine in you. Separated from me, you have no power to do anything. Peter was able to put such depth of meaning into the words that it had an almost hypnotic effect on me. Automatically, I closed my own eyes and a deep stillness came over me. He paused before repeating the text again, more slowly this time. When he repeated them for the third time, I no longer noticed the way in which he delivered them, but their meaning bore in upon me with an impact that I'd never experienced before. Somehow, 
I needed the long pause that Peter left after the repetitions to mull over the contents of the text. They somehow came alive for me in a new way. Then Peter began to pray, in words which were in complete accord with my own feelings. Lord, he prayed, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Three times he made this prayer. Then he lapsed into silence. When he spoke again, it was to use words of praise, thanks, and adoration. After another lengthy pause, he began to repeat individual phrases from the text. Make your home within me, as I make mine within you. Then, after a pause, separated from me, you have no power to do anything. He repeated these two phrases several times over, once again punctuated by pauses of various length. A profound sense of inner recollection and peace came over me, and it remained with me for the rest of the day. When Peter finished, I said, Thank you, Peter. There didn't seem anything else that I could say, or wanted to say. Yes, I see what you mean now, I said, after a brief pause. But my voice sounded flat and hollow. The trouble is, we have to learn to listen to become more deeply aware, said Peter. We have to learn to read again, too, I said. You're quite right, said Peter. I think one of our problems is that we are bombarded with literature from all sides every day of our lives. So we have acquired a habit of reading at a breathtaking pace just to keep abreast of what's going on. Our only concern is to glean the relevant facts from what we are reading and to move on to something else. If we apply the same technique to the way we read the scriptures, then we are going nowhere. It will not enable us to come to know Jesus Christ more deeply. We should read the scriptures as we would read good poetry, endlessly going over them to plunder their content. Now, everyone who finds it helpful should be encouraged to use their imaginations too. How do you mean, I asked. Well, said Peter, you could use it to set the scene in detail before you actually start to listen to the words of Christ. For instance, in the short meditation that we've just shared together, you may find it helpful to recreate the scene of the Last Supper in your mind, picturing the apostles preparing the table, seeing Christ come into the room, then watch him moving. Look at his face when he speaks. Note the expression. The same sort of scene setting could be used to build up an atmosphere before you meditate on the other gospel texts. The Passion of Christ, for instance, would lend itself to this method of praying. Don't just think of what Christ went through. Go back in your imagination and place yourself in the scene. You are among the soldiers at the scourging, one of the crowd during the carrying of the cross, an onlooker at the actual crucifixion. You see everything as it happens. You open your ears, you hear what is said, and then begin to react in prayer. But isn't this emotional approach out of date nowadays, I asked. 
There's no such thing as an out-of-date method of prayer if it helps to create the genuine spirit of the Gospels and leads a person to get to know and love Christ more deeply, said Peter. Remember, the Word was made flesh so that people of flesh and blood could understand and see God's love made seeable, made tangible. Christ's death was a brutal and painful reality through which the Word made flesh speaks of love, His love for us, in a way that is intelligible to all. When the first Christians were told to meditate at nine, twelve, and three o'clock, they were encouraged to meditate on Christ's passion. From the condemnation, his scourging and the crowning with thorns, through his suffering and his humiliation, to his crucifixion and his agonizing death on the cross. Then, as I mentioned earlier, they would meditate on his resurrection in the middle of the night, which was not such a remarkable thing to do before the electric light changed our way of life. To neglect the passion as a primary source of Christian meditation and prayer is to neglect the most important manifestation of God's love that ever happened. We are not blocks, we are not stones, we are not senseless things. If we are afraid to be moved emotionally because it's not in fashion or trendy, then we better start by praying for a little of the humility of the child if we ever hope to enter into the kingdom of God. But my big problem is, I said, that although I may try and meditate on some of the most profound truths of the faith, I'm afraid, I have to be honest, sometimes they just leave me cold, and I know they ought to be dynamite. Somehow they, they don't get through to me. It's as if I've built a barrier around myself. I'm afraid that's precisely the point, said Peter. To start with, the truths of the faith are too big, too enormous, almost too incredible for us to take in effectively. Some years ago, I listened to an astronomer talking on the radio about the distant stars in the heavens. He said that some of them were... 10 billion light years away. To be quite honest, he could have said a million light years away for all the difference it would have made to me. The distances he was talking about were literally astronomical, were so vast, so tremendous, that I couldn't take them in. It's exactly the same with the truths of the faith. Take the central truth that God is love, that he loves us personally and individually, and to such a degree that he wants to share his own personal life and love with us, it's just too much for anyone to take in. I can say it, I can repeat the words, but alone I can't penetrate or comprehend their meaning. It's the same with our emotions. They can only respond to a stimulus of a certain degree of intensity. Beyond that, they can no longer function. But with goodwill and genuine effort all round, this state of mental paralysis gradually begins to lift. The slow, prayerful meditation on the Gospel text, under the influence of the Holy Spirit who inspired them in the first place, suddenly begins to bear fruit. 
The spiritual understanding starts to stir, the emotions are touched and begin to react. What began as a rather dry academic knowledge about God changes and begins to strike us with ever-deepening impact. Knowledge begins to turn into love as the love that God has for us begins to register with effect. Now, nobody can remain the same when they come to realize that another loves them. We respond automatically. The emotions are released and we begin to express our love and thanks in return. This is the beginning of real prayer, which will grow with depth and intensity as the truth of God's love is brought home time and time again in so many different ways through slowly brooding over ruminating on the scriptures. As the impact of the gospel message explodes with maximum effect, a person finds that even the most extravagant words that they can call upon do not sufficiently voice the depth of feeling that they experience welling up from within. In the end, words of thanks, praise, adoration, and even the language of love give way. They give way to silence. A silence that says more than the most potent man-made means of expression. The slow meditative penetration of the texts now open out and envelop the whole being as a person is ever more deeply absorbed into a silent contemplative gaze upon God. The most powerful and poignant expressions of the new relationship with God seem to be emptied of their meaning in the face of the reality. Words join together those who are separate from one another. But in the perfect union, there is a perfect silence of bliss. It seems that the love of God follows the same pattern as human love, I said. Exactly. Peter answered. This is why the scriptures continually use the symbol of human love as the best possible analogy with which to describe how the love between man and God begins and grows to perfection. In the beginning of human love, words are usually fairly hard to come by. There's an initial embarrassment coping with a first-time love affair. There is usually a certain strain even an artificiality in the way in which we first express ourselves. In subsequent meetings, the conversation tends to revolve around getting to know about each other in more detail, finding out about one's own background, one's likes and dislikes. The spark of love that was there from the beginning is eventually fanned into flame, and the words of explanation give way to the language of love. The closer love draws the two into one, the less there is a need for words. It is enough to be together, to be alone, to be at one with each other in a profound, pregnant silence. The time will come when you start your meditation only to find that the reality of God's love is so close, so close and present to you, 
that all you want to do is to spend the rest of your prayer period in an all-absorbing and silent awareness of this great mystery of love. I suppose you're talking about the heights of contemplation, I said. Oh, good heavens, no, uh, said Peter, obviously surprised by what I'd said. We're only talking about the beginning of mental prayer. Strictly speaking, contemplation begins not when we want, but when God wants. True contemplation is a pure gift of God. In Christian meditation, we have been learning how to love God in his most perfect embodiment on earth, Jesus Christ. Now, love of its very nature doesn't want to be just near the one who is loved or even to be close to them. It desires union. It wants to be united with them and for always. Needless to say, no matter how perfect our meditation is, it cannot enable us to be united with a person who died over 2,000 years ago. It can and does enable us to love Jesus as he was when he was on earth, but it can't enable us to be united with him because he is no longer on earth. That is why when our love for him has come to its high point through meditation and is yearning for union with him, a sudden change in our prayer life takes place. In order that our deepest desire can be satisfied and God's plan for us can be brought about, the Holy Spirit redirects our love from the Christ on whom we have been meditating to the Christ who now lives in heaven. This is the beginning of true mystical contemplation because we are not just drawn up into his divine being but into his divine action, into his mystical contemplation of his Father. This is, however, another subject. We'll have to leave it until tomorrow. We may not have much time tomorrow, Peter said, as he was uh, getting up to leave, the fog is forecast to lift overnight. The plane should leave on time at about two o'clock in the afternoon. This means I'll be able to spend the morning with you. Although I'm afraid I won't be able to see you off at the airport, but Father Callum will drive you to the plane. I didn't sleep much that night. I had so much to think about. One thing I was sure about, however, Peter had done far more for me than I had ever expected. It may be the end of my stay on Barra, but it was a new beginning, the beginning of the rest of my life. Mm -hmm.